Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue through meaningful assessments. Visit us at cltexam.com slash get started. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. My name is Soren Schwab, VP of Partnerships here at CLT, and today we have a special treat for you. Friends, for this episode of Anchored, we are joined by Mr. Joshua Gibbs, who will be reading a version of his pamphlet, A Short Introduction to Classical Christian Education. As many of you may already know, Josh Gibbs is a teacher, a lecturer on the great books and pedagogy, and an author of several books, including How to Be Unlucky, Something They Will Not Forget, and the forthcoming, highly anticipated, Love What Lasts. He is an Alcuin Fellow and a member of the Templeton Honors College Advisory Board. He is a frequent speaker for the Society for Classical Learning and the Searcy Institute, and Gibbs also teaches online courses for Classical U and on his website, gibbsclassical.com. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to Joshua Gibbs and his reading of A Short Introduction to Classical Christian Education. A Short Introduction to Classical Christian Education by Joshua Gibbs Preface Classical Christian education is a movement caught in a strange moment. Because it is rapidly growing, it contains both newcomers and veterans. Anyone attempting to get everyone involved in classical education on the same page will be tempted to speak separately to these groups, assuming they each need to hear something slightly different. However, I believe that doing so would only deepen divisions currently present in the movement. For this reason, I have written a treatise on classical Christian education which is meant both as an introduction to newcomers and as a plumb line by which veterans can measure their own understanding of the movement's purpose. If you're new to classical Christian education, greetings, welcome. If you do a little digging, you will find that the classical Christian schools in this country have a good deal in common, but there are also differences between them. Some of these differences are insignificant, but as the movement continues to grow, some of the differences are becoming quite significant, significant enough that two schools both claiming to be classical Christian schools might not really be doing the same thing. Regardless of which school has the better understanding of classical Christian education, the differences become a problem for both schools if they do not carefully and clearly articulate what the classical Christian label means up front. Failing to do so will mean that a school brings in new families and teachers who think classical Christian education means one thing, while the administration and older teachers think it means something very different, in which case the school will slowly become divided against itself. If this happens often enough, the entire movement will become divided against itself. I have written this pamphlet to help prevent this from happening. Before beginning my description of classical Christian education, it's necessary that I make a few remarks to the veterans who've been in the movement for quite some time already. These remarks are intended to tidy things up a bit before getting down to business. If you're new to classical Christian education, feel free to skip the next section if you like. 
There are a number of matters that I do not intend to talk about here, and I need to offer a brief explanation to the veterans as to why. It's inside baseball, really, although you might find it intriguing. Introduction A Critique of the Classical Christian Movement Twenty or thirty years ago, classical Christian schools tended to be small and underfunded. Many met in musty church basements. Parents who sent their children to such schools were making a deliberate choice to do something daring, something strange, something they couldn't expect their friends and neighbors to understand. Impoverished schools with no sports teams, no senior trips, and no AP classes were obviously not going to help students get ahead in the world. But parents who sent their children to classical schools didn't care all that much about getting ahead and wanted something very different. Today, classical Christian education is not only popular, but becoming more so each year. When parents send their children to a classical Christian school, it is no longer a sign that they have despaired of the world's promises. Classical Christian schools are now competitive with other private schools. They have sports teams, senior trips, and spring formals that look impressive on Instagram, and they no longer meet in musty church basements. Their basketball teams win state championships, and their graduates go on to prestigious colleges. In short, classical Christian schools have become glorious on the earth. And thus they now attract many people who have no interest in tradition, no preference for old things, and maintain only a nominal connection to the Christian religion. In a similar way, being a Christian in the second or third century was a death sentence, but by the end of the fourth century, a public profession of Christian faith was the only way to secure a public office or win government contracts. It is one thing to describe classical Christian education as an ideal or a philosophy, and another thing entirely to describe it as it actually exists today. In this pamphlet, I'd like to do a little of both. I would like to offer standards of classical and Christian to which students, parents, teachers, administrators, and consultants should hold self-professed classical Christian schools. And I would like to say that these standards are not only doable, but are actually being done at plenty of schools in the movement, but not all. Not every Christian church is worth attending, and neither is every classical Christian school. There are plenty of self-professed classical Christian schools which have tangential connections at best to classical ideals or Christian virtues. The fact that Christian books are taught at a certain school doesn't necessarily make it Christian. The fact that old books are taught at a certain school doesn't necessarily make it classical. We must look deeper. We must get into the weeds of the classroom experience before determining if a school has earned the right to call itself classical and Christian. As a movement, classical Christian education is not without its problems. One of its greatest problems over the last 30 years has been its strong reliance on theory as opposed to experience or common sense. Many schools in the movement begin their explanation of classical Christian education by describing Dorothy Sayers' theory from her 1947 essay, The Lost Tools of Learning, 
that children progress through three distinct stages of learning. Sayers claims that little children naturally like to repeat things. Middle school students naturally like to argue, and high school students naturally want to express themselves. To each of these stages, Sayers applied the terms polparent, pert, and poetic. A good education, she suggests, works with nature, not against it. And thus, little children should be given many things to recite. Middle school children should be given instruction in logic and argumentation. And high school students should be taught poetry and rhetoric so they can express themselves elegantly. Each stage in education corresponds directly to innate proclivities of the child at that age. In the same essay, Sayers asserts that all subjects ought to be regarded as, quote, mere grist for the mental mill to work on. Consequently, many schools in the movement claim that they teach students how to think, not what to think, whereas public schools do the opposite. There is a subtle suggestion in this claim that teaching students how to think is like teaching them how to fish. Teach a man how to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Teach him how to think and he'll be independent and self-sufficient until he dies. Teaching students what to think is for propagandists and tyrants, whereas free men think for themselves. At least, this much is suggested in the average how-to-think-not-what-to-think spiel. It's worth noting that both of these explanations of classical Christian education, ages and stages and how-to-think, have always been more popular among headmasters, school boards, consultants, and admissions officers than they have been among teachers. High school teachers tend to be far more skeptical about Sayers' theories. Many are somewhat incredulous of the idea that most juniors and seniors want to express their own independent thought, or that they are old enough and wise enough to do so. Instead, most classical Christian high school teachers will tell you that their students are only comfortable summarizing the thoughts of others, and still struggle to determine which passages of a book are most important. Inventing their own arguments, saying things they haven't already heard the teacher say, and making their own connections between disparate themes and subjects are tasks which relatively few classically educated juniors or seniors can perform. While juniors and seniors have a wider experience of the world than fourth or fifth graders, they still learn in the same way for the most part. They're all basically part of the same stage, a hungry, thirsty stage in which they readily absorb everything they're regularly exposed to and recapitulate it in a simple, unedited sort of way. Most teenagers uncritically soak up popular culture and speak in a constant stream of references to what they have absorbed. Pop culture in, pop culture out. While there is something apparently generous about teaching students how to think, not what to think, a classical education does not primarily revolve around thought, but love. The emptiness of how to think, not what to think becomes apparent when we switch the word think for love. Suppose a school claimed it taught students how to love, not what to love. How can a man love properly if his love is not directed toward a proper object. The what of love determines the how. 
If a man is shown how to love romantically, he must also be shown what to love romantically. There is no how without a what. Similarly, you cannot teach a man how to cook without teaching him what to cook. How a thing is cooked entirely depends on what it is. And some things cannot be eaten no matter how you cook them. You cannot teach a man how to drive, gas on right, brakes on left, without also teaching him what to drive, cars, trucks. There is no disembodied pure act of cooking or driving or thinking. Instead, students need to be taught how to think and what to think. They need to be taught how to love and what to love. They need both dogma and skill. For all these reasons, I don't believe anything from the Lost Tools essay is necessary to explain classical Christian education as it exists in actual classrooms. There was a time when this claim would have been provocative, But the movement is now old enough, by which I mean experienced enough, that dependence on sayers is rapidly declining. The tendency in classical Christian education to rely more heavily on theory than experience derives from the fact that many of the movers and shakers in the movement are not teachers. They're headmasters, consultants, college profs, or bloggers with little or no experience teaching in elementary school, or high school classrooms. Because teachers have experience, they don't see things in terms of theory. They don't need theories. They need practices. As someone who has been teaching in classical Christian schools for nearly two decades, I've been asked by my students many, many times why we read old books when plenty of new books are perfectly decent why we study Latin when no one speaks it anymore, and why classical Christian schools even need to exist at all. As opposed to offering answers that rely on theories about what it means to be human or what it means to be Christian, I like to offer students answers that are born of observations about how the world works. I want them to understand classical Christian education as a thing which makes sense of reality, not as a thing which is hypothetically valid but disconnected from their own experiences. What follows in this pamphlet, then, is a series of claims about what classical Christian education should be, which are grounded in common sense. And common sense is simply a survey and interpretation of experience. My only presupposition is this. If classical Christian education needs to exist at all, it must be something other than a public school education, a Montessori education, or the sort of generically conservative private Christian school education which exists merely to not teach evolution, critical race theory, and identity politics. A classical Christian education should follow common-sense understandings of the words classical and Christian to their logical conclusions, which sounds simple but is truly a challenge fitting only for the courageous, because ours is a world which despises both tradition and piety. A real classical Christian education is, and will always be, quite countercultural. Part 1 classical.
I could start by explaining the entire classical Christian curriculum. But in order to keep this pamphlet brief and readable, I will instead explain the classical Christian approach to curriculum, which means answering the question, what deserves to be studied? An explanation of the entire classical curriculum would mean explaining Latin, logic, rhetoric, theology, literature, and a dozen other subjects, in which case this pamphlet would turn into a book. Beneath every subject in a classical Christian education, we may find the same animating spirit. It is my intention here to explain this spirit, which is both classical and Christian, although the classical part will require a much longer explanation. The word classical is not all that hard to define. However, for the modern man who claims to be a classical Christian educator, a common-sense definition of the word classical can be somewhat embarrassing, which is why classical Christian theorists and bloggers have invented so many strange definitions for the word. Simply put, classical educators love old things. They love old books, old music, old paintings, old manners, old ideas, and old beliefs. A classical education is largely centered around old things. This sets classical Christian education at odds with modernity because modern people tend to despise old things. Modern people often characterize old things as superstitious, boring, backwards, outdated, irrational, sexist, racist, and primitive. The tendency to, old, to see old things in this way is not limited to modern secularists and atheists. Many modern Christians don't like old books, old music, or old beliefs either. The love of old things is one of the most difficult aspects of classical Christian education for modern people to wrap their minds around, and it is the aspect most likely to lead to charges that classical education is snobby and pretentious. Once the classical educator's love of old things is properly understood, one finds it is not snobbery at all, but quite the opposite, an issue I'll address later. This said, however, any movement ought to be filled with like-minded people. And if there are people in the classical Christian education movement who don't like old things, they don't really belong. If a certain person joins the Appalachian Trail Hiking Club but hates hiking, never hikes on his own, and complains vehemently on the few hikes he ever attends, he doesn't really belong in the club, even if he enjoys the club's parties and can be depended on to bring a few good bottles of Bordeaux. Similarly, if a Bruce Springsteen fan club takes in members who hate Bruce Springsteen, constantly complain about him, and suggest that club members listen to Elvis Presley instead, what would be the point of the club? All this to say, classical Christian education is and needs to remain a particular group of people doing a particular thing. If the movement does not protect the particularity of the group, the distinctiveness of the thing they do will be lost over time. Nevertheless, the first thing one must understand about the classical love of old things is that it is not a love of all old things. Classical educators don't believe that all old things are better than all new things. They happily acknowledge that some old things are wretched, 
and that some new things are quite lovely. So what sort of old things do classical educators love, and why do they love these things? Let me answer these questions by explaining a concept which is more common than classical, but which means something quite similar. If you asked a hundred random people what the word classic means, many would probably begin by telling you it means old. Classic films are old. Classic cars are old. Classic rock is old. The word classic and the word old don't mean quite the same thing, though. A classic is not just any old thing, but a good old thing. An old thing which has held up over time. For example, Casablanca is widely regarded as a classic film. It came out in 1942, but people still watch it, enjoy it, and talk about it today. If you look at a list of all the films that came out that year, you will probably not recognize many titles. This is because very few of the films that came out in 1942 were very good, let alone as good as Casablanca. History has forgotten most of them because they were not worth remembering. Take Bullet Scars, for example a 1942 gangster film which starred Regis Toomey and Adele Longmire. There's a good chance you've never even heard of Bullet Scars or the actors in it, let alone seen it and contemplated it. The mere fact something is old doesn't make it a classic. A classic is something that has been appreciated and handed down by many generations because it still deserves our time and contemplation. When I say that a classic has been handed down, I mean that it has a venerable reputation. You've heard Casablanca is good. You haven't heard Bullet Scars is good. You probably haven't heard anything about Bullet Scars. Similarly, a classical education is devoted to books, music, paintings, and ideas that have stood the test of time. Not just any book that was around two or three hundred years ago is worth reading today. For classical educators, the question is not whether something is old, but whether it has lasted. When classical educators refer to old books and old music, they're using these terms as shorthand for old books that have lasted and old music that has lasted. They're not vindicating every book, song, and belief which existed a long time ago just the ones which have been faithfully handed down by our fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and so on. One of the first objections which skeptics raise to classical Christian education is the insistence that the classical tradition vindicates everything which is old, including evils like slavery and racism. But this is simply not the case. A classical education assumes the goodness of things which last, and slavery is a human institution which has been defeated many, many times by Christian people. It is not a tradition which has been faithfully handed down from one generation to another across the centuries, like the works of Homer or the Sacrament of Confession. As with prostitution, slavery and racism are evils which Christian people battle over and over again. Classical Christians believe the most persuasive arguments against racist ideologies are found not in the fashionable beliefs of our day, which come and go, but in the writings and sermons of St. Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, and many other classical authors. Tour any bookstore in the country, though, 
and you will find that the classics section is quite small compared to the selection of current books. There aren't that many classics. Most things aren't very good, and so most things don't last. Let's consider motion pictures once more. You don't have to go all the way back to 1942 to find the trash heaps of cinematic history. Relatively few of the thousands of films that came out in the 70s, 80s, or 90s are still widely viewed and discussed today. For every Goodfellas or Fargo, there are thousands of films that no one ever wants or needs to see again. This is not only true of films, though. The average goodwill in this country is full of books, DVDs, and CDs that were wildly popular just a few years ago, but which no one finds all that interesting anymore. Plenty of things are only interesting because they are new, and there is no quality which fades faster than newness. A rather staggering quantity of what passes as culture these days simply doesn't hold up for very long. By contrast, a classical education is concerned with things that do last because they are very good, and with helping people learn to understand and love these things. Very good things ask quite a lot of us, and they are challenging, confrontational, and can be draining. Developing a love for them is so difficult that very few people can do it on their own, especially when easier, sexier, and more pleasurable alternatives readily present themselves. Unless a child, or an adult, makes the effort to include old books and music in his life, he can easily go along with the flow of a passing ephemeral and banal culture. I'm not suggesting that we should only read Dante and only listen to Bach. But a classical Christian school is one of the institutions which makes sure that someone is keeping old traditions alive and passing down a love of beautiful, truly good things to the next generation. Deep Souls or Shallow Souls it might seem intuitive to say that things which last are worth our time, but the claim deserves a more robust explanation. What's so great about standing the test of time, and why is it so important to classical educators? To, in order to answer these questions, we need to consider how rare it is that anything lasts for more than a few years. Why are some songs that were wildly popular just ten years ago not popular at all today. Conversely, why is the music of Beethoven still performed in symphony halls across the globe 200 years later? Why don't the most popular novels of the 1980s sell many copies now, while people have been slowly, steadily buying books like Paradise Lost, Don Quixote, and Frankenstein for hundreds of years? Why do we get tired of some things after just a few years, while other things continue to hold our attention for centuries, or even longer. When I explain the importance of old books to my students, I often lead them through these same questions. When I name a song that was popular three years ago, they groan just to hear it mentioned, and I ask, why is that song not popular anymore? The most common answer is, because people got tired of it. I ask, why did people get tired of it? And they answer, because they heard it too often. I reply, why? And they say, because it sounded good for a while, so they listened to it over and over. 
but then it stopped sounding good. While their answers are very simple, they are entirely correct. The most popular songs are not beautiful or wise. We do not listen to them because they're good for us, but because they are pleasant. We consume them like potato chips, which are tasty enough to keep eating, but not satisfying enough to put down. On the other hand, people who enjoy Beethoven tend to not consume Beethoven's music like potato chips. They don't listen to the same Beethoven symphony over and over again until they're sick of it. After listening to a Beethoven symphony, very few people immediately go on to another Beethoven symphony. Instead, they listen to nothing at all. They're content to simply think about what they've just heard. This is because the qualities which draw us to popular music are very different from the qualities which draw us to classical music. From one week to the next, the most popular song in the country is something which is catchy, clever, sexy, spectacular, shocking, or slick. Such qualities are easy to enjoy because they appeal primarily to the senses, which means that their appeal is immediate and does not ask much of us. It is for this reason that our interest in popular music goes in great waves. We become suddenly very interested in a new, in a new song, then just as suddenly lose interest in it which is why the most popular song of one year has no chance of being the most popular song of the following year as well. Our interest in things which have lasted tends to be lower, and yet it never goes away. This year, Beyoncé will outsell Beethoven. This century, Beethoven will outsell Beyoncé. This is because the same qualities which make an artist the most popular this year also guarantee their unpopularity in 50 years. The sort of music which lasts is not catchy, clever, sexy, spectacular, shocking, or slick. At least these are not words most people would use to describe the music of Brahms, Haydn, or Mozart. Put another way, the sort of music that lasts for centuries does not appeal to us merely because it pleases our senses. We tire of sensual art rather quickly for many reasons, the chief of which is that it's easily replaced by something even more sensual and less spiritual, less intellectual. As Roger Scruton notes in the film Why Beauty Matters, what is shocking the first time is boring the second time. Again, movies make for a convenient example. The sort of cinematic violence that wowed audiences back in the 1950s now seems dull by comparison. What passed for alluring and seductive clothing in the 1950s could now be worn to church. It's fairly easy to make a new film more exciting than the last. It simply needs to be faster, louder, and have more explosions and shorter skirts than whatever came before it. These sort of intensifications do not require a deep intellect or profound soul, even if they do produce a massive box office. It is not difficult to make a dress more alluring. You simply lower the neckline and raise the hemline. However, one cannot make a story more beautiful in the same sort of simple mechanical way. Neither can one make music more profound by turning a dial. Things that last have qualities which cannot be acquired easily or quickly. The works of Homer, Augustine, Dante, Bach, and so forth are not praised because they are exciting or clever, but because they are beautiful and wise. 
Beauty and wisdom are so rare that whenever and wherever we find them, we hold on to them with all our might. This is why people are still reading the works of Augustine, still listening to the music of Bach, and still traveling thousands of miles to see the paintings of El Greco and Caravaggio. Things that are exciting, sexy, funny, clever, and spectacular, on the other hand, are a dime a dozen. They come along all the time, and so we have little incentive to cling to them or return to them again later, which is another way of saying they don't last. Such things are also easy to find. We simply need to follow the masses, because the masses are always looking for instant gratification. However, if a man wants wisdom, he is looking for something rare, and cannot merely follow the crowd. Instead, he must seek out a consensus of the centuries. The curriculum of a classical education is designed to be that consensus. The books, art, ideas, and music which constitute a classical education are those which have been sought out again and again, not because they are pleasant, but because they are good and true and beautiful. Put another way, one might say that the works of Homer and Augustine are given to us by a crowd, albeit one which has accumulated slowly across a long passage of history. It is not a crowd of people who are exactly like us, with our prejudices and weaknesses and strengths, but a far more diverse crowd from different eras, different incomes, different traditions, and different nationalities. The crowd includes some strangers, but also our own fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and so on, who have preserved the classics for us. They were under no obligation to read the works of Augustine and play the music of Bach. They might have chosen the instant gratification of popular sensual entertainment, but instead they chose to keep the classical tradition alive. In this way, classical Christian educators view classics as heirlooms they must steward. Like other sorts of heirlooms, antique furniture, say, or jewelry from the 18th century, classics have an unassuming dignity. They're not glitzy or flashy, and yet they command our respect and attention. The dignity which classics possess intimidates and confuses shallow people, who are always tempted to sell heirlooms and spend the profit on their own pleasure. A quilt made in Pennsylvania six generations ago might be worth $20,000 and have taken 150 years to accrue such a high value. And yet the flighty heir of such a quilt might reason that a $20 blanket from Target could keep her just as warm and thus sell the heirloom to travel shop and gratify her vanity, children and grandchildren be damned. Neither classics nor heirlooms flatter our tastes or desires. Their appeal is more spiritual than sensual, which is to say they are difficult to enjoy. In this, classics call us to refine our tastes and to want higher, better things, with the refinement taking place over a lifetime. Unlike most new books, classics are not read once and then set aside forever. New books are generally written in such a way that one read is sufficient to fully grasp the plot, characters, arguments, facts, and themes, which means that we usually don't have lifelong relationships with them. But because classics exist for something other than pleasure, we can return to them across many decades. 
The boy who reads Paradise Lost at 16 can read it again at 26, when he's newly married, and find something more profound. The words on the page are the same, but his adult experiences allow him to read deeper into the book and haul out more of its wisdom. The same wisdom which the book offers on a second read will allow him to get deeper still on a third read, years later, after he has become a father. This is truly a relationship. The wisdom gleaned on a first read enables a deeper second read, and the deeper second read enables a third, which is deeper still. The more wisdom the reader brings to a classic, the more wisdom the classic can give back, and this symbiotic relationship need never end. When people only read books once or only listen to music, which is popular now, they do not develop deep loves. A classical education aims at producing students who love good things deeply. A deep love is not a new love. A deep love is a love which has endured over time, a love which has been tested and suffered, a love which has evolved and matured. Very few pop culture artifacts can sustain a lifelong relationship. Their appeal is simple, shallow, and primarily based on pleasure, which means we aren't willing to suffer anything on their behalf. If the only point of a thing is pleasure, the moment it becomes difficult or trying is the moment we abandon it. What's more, there is no point in learning to enjoy something which only exists to offer pleasure. For this reason, if a man is listening to the radio and a new song comes on which he does not like, he has little incentive to learn to like it. He's better off finding a different station which is playing something more to his taste. Sane people don't suffer for the sake of mere pleasure, but they are willing to suffer for causes greater than pleasure. While the books, music, and art which comprise the classical tradition are often quite beautiful, their primary purpose is not to give pleasure, which means they can be quite difficult to enjoy. In this, classical things are very different than most contemporary things. The point of the classical tradition is to do people good, and most things which are good for people are also a little unpleasant. In the same way that people know they ought to lose weight, drink less, and look at their phones less, many people know they ought to have better taste. They stand in a bookstore and thumb through a copy of Paradise Lost, read random lines from the middle and think, I wish I understood this sort of thing then set the book back on the shelf and look for something easier. Or they scan around a radio, pause for a moment on a symphony, and think, I really wish I could get into classical music, but then find something more accessible on another station. The sorts of things many people wish they could understand and enjoy are what make up a classical curriculum. A love for old things provides a necessary counterbalance to the modern tendency to selectively pursue and develop relationships with only the things we find personally attractive. Many non-classical educators claim that a vital role of education is to help students discover and pursue their passions. However, a classical education places no priority on this. Classical educators believe some passions are wicked, some passions are shallow, and many passions are simply not worthy of pursuit. Alcoholics have a passion for liquor. Gluttons have a passion for food. The lazy have a passion for sleep and entertainment. The man who wishes he liked Beethoven, 
but turns the station to something easier may have a passion for rock and roll. But so what? There is often a vast chasm between the things we enjoy and the things we ought to enjoy. Classical educators are not indifferent to the passions of students, but they believe that it is more important to consciously shape and refine their students' interests and loves. They want students to be careful how they live, as St. Paul tells the Ephesians, and to do everything they can to redeem the time, because we live in evil days. The man who commits himself to books which repay contemplation and rereading, the sort of books he can ruminate on over the course of a lifetime, is living more carefully than the man who squanders his time on simple-minded books that aren't worth a second look. The man who listens to music he can take into his 60s and 70s is getting more for his time than the man who listens to music he will be embarrassed to take into old age. Classical educators do not believe that all human passions are self-justifying. They believe the love of goodness, truth, and beauty is justified. What about good new things? The depth of classic works like Paradise Lost or The City of God means they're difficult to read, but this is one of the reasons they're taught in classical schools. New books do not require a teacher. New books are written so that contemporary readers can understand them without a guide. What would be the point of teaching books in school which students could understand on their own? Having taught both new books and old books in a classroom setting, I can tell you that students reading new books by Hemingway or Steinbeck, say, are far more apt to lose interest in school than students reading books which require the help of a teacher. The more recent a book is, the less confidence students have that anyone will care about the book in 20 years. Homer, on the other hand, will matter just as much in 20 years as he does now. If you look at a list of the 100 best-selling books in the country this week, you will find most are not terribly old. The excitement and conversation which surrounds new books means they don't need to be assigned by a teacher. People find them on their own. There are new books worth reading, new films worth seeing, new music worth listening to. But most people find such things on their own through reviews or recommendations from friends. Plenty of new books are pretty good. But the sole fact a book is good does not justify teaching it in the classroom. Class time is a rare commodity which ought to be reserved for rare things, like things which have lasted for centuries. What is more, new things tend to not require an explanation or a due date. Classics are assigned in classical schools not just so teachers can explain them, but so teachers can hold students accountable for finishing them. We don't need anyone to hold us accountable to do easy, pleasant things. But classics are difficult enough that very few people read them on their own. If you did a survey of all the people who read Paradise Lost last year, I'd wager that most of them did so for a class they were taking. Most people are only willing to read a difficult book if they have to, or if someone they trust puts it in their hands and says, you need to read this. A classical Christian education is an education which requires discipline. And no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, as St. Paul writes in Hebrews. But discipline produces a harvest of righteousness 
and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Hebrews 12, 11 and 12. I don't mean that a classical Christian education is all pain and drudgery. However, a classical education does not prioritize good feelings, choice, or comfort, even though these things are prioritized at other schools. Rather, the sort of relationship one has with old things demands patience and humility. Patience, because old books demand multiple reads, and humility, because old books don't tell us what we want to hear. This is putting it mildly, though. Standards of Goodness Given the cost of private education, many people have the mistaken impression that a classical Christian school offers a sort of boutique education that centers around the tastes and preferences of students. The fact that class sizes are relatively small means that the education can be more personalized and tailored to the individual, which is one of the benefits parents believe they are paying for. This is probably true at some private schools, but it's not true of classical Christian schools. While every student is a unique individual, a classical education is far more concerned with what students have in common than with what makes each one of them special and distinct from one another. This is one of the reasons why classical Christian schools have dress codes. It is more important for students to look like students and act like students than it is for them to just be themselves. A classical education is predicated on the belief that there are kinds of people and that every kind of person needs to behave in a manner appropriate to their kind. A man is a kind of person, for example, and there are good men and bad men. A girl is a kind of person as well, so is a boy, a teacher, a student, a musician, a senator, a doctor, a lawyer, and a Christian. Thus, there are good teachers and bad ones, good students and bad ones, good Christians and bad ones. To a great extent, though, Modernity has rejected the idea that there are kinds of people, which means that everyone is free to determine for himself what it means to be a man, a woman, a student, a musician, and a Christian. If we are all free to determine what it means to be a man or a woman, there's really no such thing as good men or bad men. The very idea of a good man presumes that a man ought to be something in particular, and that some standard exists which is indifferent to our feelings. But if there's no such thing as a good man, it means that men aren't good for anything, and that society doesn't really need men. While our society promises endless personal freedom to individuals, and the right of the individual to determine absolutely everything about himself, many people end up discovering that such freedom robs them of the will to live, thrive, and do good. If every man is free to do whatever he wants, it means the world has no use for him. If he gets out of bed in the morning, fine. If not, fine. It's all the same to the world. No matter what the individual does, society looks on approvingly. On the other hand, a classical Christian education is chiefly concerned with helping boys become good men, helping girls become good women, and helping Christians become good Christians. No man is free to determine for himself what makes a man good, what makes a woman good, or what makes a Christian good. Rather, our ancestors have handed down to us a standard of goodness by which we may all seek out stable, satisfying, pious, productive lives. 
The standard of goodness is not merely an abstract set of laws, but is discerned in all the novels, poems, paintings, proofs, symphonies, histories, philosophies, and theologies which have survived over the centuries. Just as an old woman has nothing personal to gain from passing on an old quilt to her granddaughter, so our ancestors had nothing personal to gain from commending Milton, Bach, and Rembrandt to us. They didn't bequeath us these things for their own pleasure, but for our own benefit. Much like teachers, our ancestors were not merchants trying to sell copies of classics so they could become rich. An entertainer has to please his audience and may do whatever it takes to secure as large an audience as possible. However, a classical educator may only teach whatever will do his students good. The classical tradition is comprised of human thought and labor, but it is also a reflection of everything our ancestors have gleaned, intuited, and discovered and determined about God. It is not merely a standard of goodness, but a standard of truth and beauty as well. Classical educators believe that wherever they find truth, goodness, or beauty, they have found God himself. God does not merely approve of goodness. He is goodness. Beauty is not a theory God believes in. He is beauty. Given that truth, goodness, and beauty are divine, the classical tradition is only fitting work for those who are involved in a serious seeking after God, as Richard Baxter once put it. Given how many people now claim to be Christians and yet don't go to church, don't pray, don't tithe, an explanation of what classical Christian schools take to be the standard of a serious seeking after God is necessary. Critical thinking. As I mentioned earlier, modern people tend to like new things and despise old things. This is not merely an aesthetic preference, though, because modern people also tend to think that any opinion on race, gender, or authority, which is more than a few years old, is racist, sexist, or hopelessly out of touch. The sort of opinions about race, which were thought progressive and enlightened during the Clinton years, were regarded as primitive and backwards by the Obama years. In the last 25 years, multiculturalism has gone from a sign of sophistication to an embarrassing social blunder, and what passed as feminism 50 years ago seems patriarchal today. At the same time, modern people tend to be blissfully unaware that the beliefs which are currently thought progressive and cosmopolitan will be regarded as crude and provincial just a few years down the road. They assume that they live at the apex of human history, and that after thousands of years fumbling around in the dark, mankind is finally figured out what's right and true about the most important matters. All that's left is the work of purging the world of all the people who are stuck in the past. Some people understand the rapidity with which popular thought changes, and are content to believe whatever most people believe now simply because that's easiest. When popular thought changes ten years from now, their own thought will change as well. They don't have the courage to resist the flow of culture, and they're carried along from one intellectual fad to another, entirely indifferent to its moral content. They watch whatever most people are watching, no matter how stupid. They read whatever most people are reading, no matter how insipid. They listen to whatever most people are listening to, no matter how wretched. Their lives are not regulated by belief, conviction, or even contemplation, but chance. Should their culture take a definitive turn toward brazen wickedness, 
they would do. However, popular beliefs are not the only beliefs there are. One of the greatest benefits of reading old books, listening to old music, and discussing old ideas is the constantly growing awareness that there is an entirely different set of beliefs to consider than just the ones that everyone accepts today. While it takes courage to withstand the flow of culture, it also takes the right tools. Someone who has blindly accepted popular opinions for years may see that popular opinion on an important matter is changing and not like it, but he may simultaneously not know how to resist it. If he is honest with himself, he will admit that the old popular opinion was no less arbitrary than the new one. The old popular opinion emerged from an even older one, and he recalls condemning his elders for holding to that opinion, just as he himself is now condemned for not moving on to the latest popular opinion. So it seems that every generation declares anew what is right, pronounces stern judgment on the generation which came before, and awaits stern judgment from their own children. A classical education provides students the tools necessary to resist this flow of culture, to not be swept along with every wind of new secular doctrine, and to not have their tastes dictated by advertisers. What are these tools? Well, simply put, a student of the classics gains an understanding of what people used to believe. This sounds rather tidy, and I don't mean to suggest that there was some bygone golden era in which all the people on planet Earth held the same opinions and priorities. It's not as though all old books are in perfect agreement. But there are many beliefs about important matters which are shared between authors as diverse as Homer, Moses, Plato, Confucius, St. Paul, St. Augustine, Dante, Shakespeare, Rembrandt, Bach, Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, Frederick Douglass, and Dostoevsky. Classical educators talk quite a bit about truth, goodness, and beauty. And while there are many reasons for this, one of the main reasons is that classical authors and artists, like the ones I just mentioned, tend to agree on quite a bit when it comes to these three concepts. These authors and artists come down from different nations, different classes, different centuries, different millennia, and different religious traditions to us, and yet they had many beliefs and convictions in common. Granted, they described truth, beauty, and goodness from different perspectives and with different points of interest, but this is why classical educators read and study broadly. While the classical curriculum borrows from pagans, Jews, Catholics, Anglicans, Puritans, Presbyterians, Greeks, Italians, Africans, Americans, Arabs, Russians, Germans, and the Chinese, and draws from antiquity, the medieval period, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment. One of the most common complaints made against classical Christian schools is that their curriculums aren't diverse enough. While demands for more diversity have an appearance of generosity and open-mindedness, the sort of people who complain about a lack of diversity in classical schools are typically interested in adding just one kind of literature to the curriculum. New literature. Most classical educators are content to teach nearly anything which has lasted, no matter what kind of person wrote it, composed it, or painted it. However, the sort of people who only accept popular opinions understand that old books are largely in agreement on matters of truth, goodness, and beauty, which is why they aren't content with the female authors in the classical tradition, or the minority authors in the classical tradition, or the non-Christian authors in the classical tradition. 
Many of them don't actually want diversity. They simply want fewer old ideas being taught. They want new ideas to be treated with the same dignity and respect that we afford old ideas, even though new ideas haven't earned it. Old ideas offer a vantage point from which new ideas can be evaluated. The man being hustled from one fashionable idea to the next may sense that the latest ideas are unreliable and fleeting. But unless he has a stable place to stand that is outside the flow of culture, his objections to the hustle won't be based on anything other than feeling and suspicion. It's not enough to realize new ideas don't last and don't work. Unless a man knows of older and better ideas, he may despair that any ideas work. A classical education offers rich and varied proof that there is something outside the whirl and chaos of fashions which now drive our culture. Some ideas do last. Some beliefs do prevail over time. Some convictions are strong enough to survive the centuries. Nonetheless, there is much confusion, even in classical schools, about why the past is studied. I regularly ask my students why we study the past and read old books. Too often, they reflexively reply, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. I imagine that many of their parents would say the same thing. If you do a little digging, you'll find this proverb isn't terribly old, and there are a dozen common ways of paraphrasing it. But the source is George Santayana, a 20th century philosopher who was many things, but certainly not a Christian. The idea that the past is a thing someone might be doomed to repeat is close to the heart of progressive politics, for it assumes that whatever we have now is necessarily better than whatever came before it. There are few beliefs more likely to justify mindlessly hustling on to the latest thing than the belief that the past is a thing we must escape. Progressive condemnations of the past and of tradition grew out of the Enlightenment, a philosophical movement in Europe that began in the late 17th century. It would take a long time to thoroughly explain the Enlightenment, but a quick sketch of it here is absolutely necessary, given that classical educators are, to a great extent, fighting a losing battle against Enlightenment prejudices. In the two centuries which followed the Reformation, battle lines were often drawn along denominational lines, and by the end of the 17th century, many Christians in Europe had begun to believe that religion could no longer justify its place at the center of society. Religion was confusing and divisive. If you asked 10 Christians what a certain passage of Scripture meant, you were likely to get 11 different answers. The Enlightenment aimed to move religion out of the center of society, quarantined in churches and homes, and to base society instead on reason and science. Reason and science were, it was claimed, unambiguous and indisputable, and thus a more sure foundation upon which to build the social contract. Catholics and Presbyterians could not agree on the Lord's Supper, but they could agree on the principles of fermentation, as Peter Lightheart observes in Solomon Among the Postmoderns, which proved science is more universal than religion, and thus more suited to the task of binding a diverse population together. And so knowledge slowly replaced faith as the essential function of man. This focus on knowledge is largely indistinguishable from today's progressive ideology, which asserts that the knowledge base of mankind is always growing, 
Just as an adult knows more than a child, a modern man necessarily knows more than an ancient man. If knowing is the essential function of mankind, the passage of time cannot help but improve the condition of humanity. Consequently, everything old is necessarily inferior to everything new. While Christianity, Judaism, and Islam held that ancient man walked with God in Eden, the Enlightenment inverted human history and exchanged this story for that of the caveman. Thus, the past was reimagined as a superstitious, backwards, primitive place. This myth exists to this day and is also popular among Christians, even Christians at classical schools. For this reason, there is a sharp division in classical Christian education between those who accept Santayana's proverb at face value and those who don't. Those who accept the idea that one might be doomed to repeat the past believe that one of the great purposes of a classical Christian education is to teach critical thinking. And so students read the classics in order to evaluate them, pick them apart, accept the small portions which comport with the Bible, and discard everything else. However, a different sort of classical educator is apt to edit Santayana's proverb and say, those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat the most fashionable beliefs of the present. Such teachers read and study the classics not to escape the past, but to escape the tyranny of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, which constantly, breathlessly exclaims its own superiority, even while it has no evidence or accomplishments to back up such claims. Again, such teachers read and study the classics not merely to look for stray claims which they already believe, but to be reformed according to the lasting wisdom and beauty of human civilization and Christian tradition. They do not speak of tradition with a sneer, but with respect, especially as concerns those traditions handed down for centuries by their faithful ancestors. Part 2. Christian. What, you may wonder, is the word Christian doing in the expression classical Christian education? This is a fair question, because you have no doubt encountered many Christian things in the world and formed an impression of what the word usually means. There are Christian movies, Christian books, Christian painters, Christian radio stations, and so forth. It should be noted that there have been Christian painters for many, many centuries, and it is only recently that they have begun using the term Christian painters. Rembrandt was a painter and a Christian, but we don't refer to him as a Christian painter. Likewise, Mozart's Requiem is music, and it was written for Christian purposes, but it is not often referred to as Christian music. If someone told you, I enjoy Christian music, you would not immediately assume they meant Handel, Bach, and Josquin Dupre. Rather, you would assume they meant Third Day, Lauren Daigle, and Chris Tomlin. Similarly, we tend to not think of Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice as Christian fiction, or to think of Augustine's Confessions as Christian nonfiction. So far as cultural artifacts are concerned, the word Christian now suggests a popular, fashionable style, it tends to be personal, uplifting, emotional, suitable for children, and evangelical, which means it contains a simple declaration that belief in Christ's death and resurrection saves a man from eternity in hell. Thus, Mozart's Requiem is not Christian music because it's not written in a popular style. It's not uplifting, 
and it contains no assertion that listeners should say the sinner's prayer. When I say that most Christian cultural artifacts are created according to popular and fashionable styles, I mean that very few Christian books or songs are made to last longer than their secular counterparts. Just as secular pop songs come and go, so do Christian pop songs. Just as secular books come and go, so do Christian books. The Christian music, which was popular 30 years ago, sounds dated today. But this is true of secular music as well. The Christian self-help books, which were cutting-edge bestsellers 30 years ago, now clutter goodwill shelves. And this is true of secular self-help books as well. A good many Christian things are meant to mirror their secular counterparts as closely as possible and vary only in terms of message. At their best, Christian things pass as secular things in the same way that the best zero-calorie sweeteners pass as real sugar, all the pleasure, none of the guilt. Christian culture comes and goes for the same reason secular culture comes and goes. We tire of it quickly because it's shallow and easily replaced. And while the thing which replaces it isn't better, it is newer, and shallow people tend to pursue novelty. The fact that Christian now connotes such tawdry qualities raises the question of what's meant by classical Christian education. Is the Christian referenced in classical Christian education the same Christian referred to in Christian fiction and Christian radio? The classical Christian movement is around 30 years old, but Christian schools existed long beforehand. Are classical Christian schools a kind of Christian school? Did the forerunners of the classical Christian movement look at Christian schools, Christian music, Christian culture, and say, this is all basically great, it just needs a few classical touches? Or does the word classical radically alter what is conventionally meant by Christian? Christianity versus classical Christianity. Based on what has already been argued in the first part of this pamphlet, it should come as no surprise that the classical element of classical Christian education is largely antithetical to what is commonly thought of as Christian. One cannot pursue the benefits of classical things without simultaneously losing interest in contemporary Christian things, which tend to be shallow and disposable. The more one enjoys Bach, the less Lauren Daigle has to offer. It's possible to enjoy both Bach and Lauren Daigle, but an increasing love of Bach will not coincide with an increasing love of Daigle. Very little Christian culture lasts, or is even meant to last, whereas classical things are defined by their lastingness. Most Christian songs and books are written to be instantly comprehended and enjoyed. As with secular songs, we listen to Christian songs over and over until we tire of them, which generally doesn't take long, and then we move on to new Christian songs, which we will also binge on and then purge from our favorite playlists. By contrast, classical works of art are not primarily meant to be pleasurable, but to slowly transform us into more glorious beings, which means we have to return to them over and over again at intervals. A classical Christian school is not classical and Christian. Rather, classical Christianity is a fundamentally different sort of Christianity than is referred to in contemporary terms like Christian radio or Christian fiction. The two sorts of Christianity have little in common, 
Classical Christianity is not a version of Christianity. It's the other way around. The sort of Christianity suggested by Christian radio and Christian fiction is a cheap commodified version of classical Christianity. Classical Christianity predates the Christian genre by many, many centuries. It is the more beautiful, intellectual, stable, rational, mature ancestor of Christian. One is a cathedral that has been lovingly tended to for a thousand years, while the other is a billion-dollar football stadium which will look old-fashioned in 19 years and accordingly be torn down and replaced with a nearly identical billion-dollar football stadium. In saying all this, I don't mean that classical Christian schools are opposed to students listening to Christian radio or reading Christian fiction. But neither are they strictly opposed to students listening to Top 40 radio or reading popular secular books. I do mean, however, that a classical Christian education is not enhanced by listening to pop music, be it secular or Christian. A classical Christian education does not suppose that a steady diet of Christian radio and Christian fiction is good for the soul. While pop Christian books and music may have a good message, a classical Christian education has concerns for good taste, careful thought, and spiritual depth, which transcend good messages. In and of themselves, good messages are worth very little. Love your spouse, play with your kids, go to church. Well, there you go. You just heard three good messages which are unlikely to affect your behavior in any way. And why? Well, because they weren't delivered in a way that you could take seriously. They were not delivered in a way that will linger in your memory or confront you in a moment of temptation. Of course, I do think you should love your spouse. I do think you should play with your kids and go to church. But persuading you to do these things isn't the purpose of this pamphlet. So too many Christian songs and books and movies have a good message, but they exist primarily to entertain, encourage, amuse, or lead the audience through an intensely emotional experience which is vindicating, reassuring, arousing, sublime, or cathartic, all of which are pleasant, I suppose, but none of which help anyone grow in wisdom and virtue. If a man listens to simple, shallow songs with good messages, he's a thousand times more likely to absorb the shallowness of the style than the goodness of the message. Good messages pass through our minds relatively quickly. If a young child watches a loud, zany cartoon wherein some message about sharing is tacked onto the end, the child is far more apt to imitate the mood of the show, screaming, running around the house, than to offer the use of his toys to other kids. Consequently, a classical Christian education does not vindicate every cultural artifact with a good message. The goal of a classical Christian education is not to get good messages into students' minds, but to lead them to love and adore goodness itself, and only God is good. Classical and Ecumenical Nonetheless, Classical Christian education is an ecumenical movement which accommodates Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, Anglicans, Orthodox Christians, and so forth. As such, what exactly is classical Christianity? If it is capable of embracing many diverse dogmas, is classical Christianity simply a subtle way of saying real Christianity or actual Christianity? 
Do classical Christians who attend Presbyterian churches think it's more important to be classical than to be Presbyterian? Do classical Christian schools subtly posit themselves as viable alternatives to churches? In order to answer all these questions, I'll begin by saying that while there are many different kinds of Christians, Catholics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, all the rest, classical Christianity is best understood by dividing all the Christians of the world into just two camps, Christians who go to church every Sunday and Christians who don't. When I refer to Christians who go to church every Sunday, I mean every Sunday without fail. Week after week, month after month, year after year, when Sunday morning rolls around, they can be found in church. When they take a vacation, they look for the church, which is most similar to their church back home. They don't go to work on Sunday morning, don't play sports on Sunday morning, do not invent excuses for sleeping in on Sunday morning, and generally regard illness as the only acceptable reason for not being in church on Sunday morning. Let us refer to such Christians as every Sunday Christians. When I refer to Christians who don't go to church every Sunday, I mean they go to church every so often. They might attend once or twice a month, but they also might let an entire month slip by without going once. When they don't go to church, they stay home because they're tired from a busy week or a late Sunday night. They may have schoolwork, yard work, or some other kind of work which could not be completed without skipping church. Or perhaps they have sports games or an event scheduled. Let's refer to such Christians as every-so-often Christians. While Presbyterians and Catholics have many theological differences, every-Sunday Presbyterians and every-Sunday Catholics have a good deal in common. Every Sunday Christians do not go to church because they feel like it. Every Sunday Christians are just as busy, tired, overworked, and overscheduled as every so often Christians. Every Sunday Christians wake up on Sunday morning, they want to go back to bed. When they set their alarms on Saturday night, they do so knowing that sleep is important to good health. They know that leisure and family time are important too, and that if they stayed home from church, they could tend to their hobbies and pastimes, clean, write letters, respond to texts, or enjoy a leisurely breakfast with their families. However, every Sunday Christians do not go to church because they feel like it. They do not go to church because they don't have anything else that they must or want to do. They go to church because they believe they are obligated to do so. They go to church because it is their duty. Every so often, Christians do not regard going to church as a duty or an obligation. They go to church when they feel like it, and they don't always feel like going. Because they do not believe that going to church is a duty, every so often, Christians are much less likely to pray daily, read the scriptures daily, or regularly discuss the precepts of God with their friends and families. People feel like doing things which are pleasant. Nobody feels like doing something which is painful, inconvenient, or embarrassing. And we voluntarily undertake unpleasant tasks only when we value something higher than our own pleasure. Every so often Christians do not object to religion, provided that it asks them to do nothing inconvenient. But when their religion requires them to embrace teachings or habits, 
that are perceived to be unpopular, unfashionable, backwards and dull, they are not inclined to suffer embarrassment and tend to adopt trendier views which are easier to express in public. Classical Christianity is every Sunday Christianity. Classical Christianity is a dutiful commitment not only to God, but also to the earthly institutions of the Christian religion, be they church or state. Duties are not fulfilled through mere intellectual assent and positive feelings. Duties are fulfilled in word and deed. It is through fulfilling the obligation to worship God in church every Sunday, regardless of our feelings or preferences, that Christians practice pious loyalty to God. A thousand years ago, regular church attendance was not possible for most Christians, not even those who were willing to suffer great pain and inconvenience, because they simply lived too far from their churches to make it on foot more than once or twice a year. Nonetheless, such Christians suffered more in their one yearly trip to church than modern Christians suffered in a decade of comfortable climate-controlled drives to Sunday worship. Medieval Christians would have wept for embarrassment to know a day would come when self-professed Christians would be capable of making it to church without any danger or real inconvenience and yet stay home because they didn't feel like going. The desire to live in harmony with these older Christians, though they are dead, is one of the things that drives classical Christians to church every Sunday. We train ourselves to remain faithful to God when it is very difficult, by remaining faithful to God when it is only a little difficult to do so. Constant habitual church attendance is a critical sign that a man gives himself that his own preferences and comfort don't have ultimate value. Because duties are fulfilled in word and deed, every Sunday Christians must fulfill their duties somewhere, and the every Sunday Presbyterian and the every Sunday Catholic both have a dogged commitment to their respective churches. They obey different church governments, but their obedience is born of the same pious commitment to God. If an every Sunday Presbyterian became a Catholic, he would be an every Sunday Catholic as well. Classical Christian education presumes every Sunday Christianity because students and teachers alike need an inviolable standard by which to sort through the old books old music, old art, and old ideas which they study. A man cannot believe everything he finds in old books for the obvious reason that old books can and do disagree with one another. While many old books can be harmonized with one another, there are significant claims which Plato makes, say, which are incompatible with claims St. Augustine makes. And there are claims Burke makes which are antithetical to claims Rousseau makes and so forth. Unless the student obeys a real and fixed spiritual authority, the study of old books will do him little good. He will dabble in them, but not believe them. If his church has no authority, neither will Burke or Homer or Jane Austen. The every Sunday Christian reads old books, studies old art, listens to old music, and so forth, to fill out the duties he owes to his church and his God. Wherever his church speaks with authority... The every Sunday Christian obeys. However, most churches speak dogmatically on a relatively narrow range of theological matters and say little on the matter of taste, beauty, and philosophy. The Presbyterian Church makes no formal proclamations on Taylor Swift, 
brutalist architecture, neckties, smartphones, R-rated films, recreational dating, sonnets, the corporal discipline of children, the novels of Jane Austen, the paintings of Diego Velasquez, or the symphonies of Gustav Mahler. Various Presbyterian pundits have written on these matters, but those writings do not have the weight of the Westminster Catechism and are not binding on all Presbyterians. A Presbyterian in good standing may profess Taylor Swift's work to be brilliant or crushingly banal, and the elders of his church have no reason to charge him with heresy either way. The fact that church governments don't make pronouncements about Taylor Swift, brutalist architecture, neckties, and so forth, does not mean these matters are unimportant, however. And neither does it mean that these matters are entirely disconnected from those issues upon which church governments do make pronouncements. Rather, a church expects Christians to live out its dogmas, even if it does not police every nuance of that living out. While the Presbyterian Church has not made a formal proclamation about Taylor Swift, it has formally proclaimed that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, a claim which has ramifications on whether a Presbyterian can adore Swift's music. The same is not only true of the Presbyterian Church, of course, but of the Catholic Church, the Methodist Church, the Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, and any church which has dogmas. The importance of these non-dogmatic matters lies in their quantity. The vast majority of life is lived outside of the church. In terms of volume, time has always been weighted toward the secular, not the sacred. In a seven-day week, just one day is holy. God only asks for 10% of our income. It takes two hours to make a meal and 20 minutes to eat it, but only 20 seconds to pray for it. Most church lectionaries put forward a dozen or so verses of Scripture to be read day by day, whereas reading the works of John Milton or John Grisham at such a pace would be absurd. Holy things are not measured the way common things are measured, which is why the Lord's Supper is a single bite of bread and a single sip of wine, enough to sustain a soul, but not enough to sustain a body. Secular, common, earthly things simply require more time, more money, and more labor, and thus take up the majority of our lives. The fact that a man claims to believe the dogmas of his church does not necessarily mean that he lives out those dogmas in a consistent way. And there are plenty of Christians whose lives outside of church are so contrary to the claims of their churches that we could nearly judge them schizophrenic. Many people think of religion as a circumscribed arena of life which has little to no bearing on the way they choose what to read, what to watch, how to vote, and so forth. A classical Christian education, on the other hand, aims at reconciling life outside the church with life inside the church. Classical Christian education is an ecumenical, accommodating movement inasmuch as classical Christian educators believe that the glorious old work of Bach Rembrandt, Milton, and Dante can be harmonized with the dogmas of Presbyterian, Catholic, Orthodox, Baptist, and Lutheran churches, and so on. A classical Christian education presumes agreement between the student's church and the student's school. Of course, not all churches have dogmas anymore. But a classical Christian education is predicated on students attending churches which do have dogmas and do command obedience. 
While classical Christian education is an ecumenical movement, it's not a movement which comports with any and every Christian church in existence. There are plenty of churches which put forward teachings about tradition, authority, salvation, sanctification, piety, and works of faith, which are incompatible with the classical Christian project. Thus, the classical Christian community has both classical fences and Christian fences, which determine the compatibility with prospective teachers, administrators, and families. The purpose of this pamphlet, in fact, is to define and explain these fences. In conclusion, most explanations of classical Christian education are sales pitches, which aim to make the movement seem as agreeable as possible. My goal, however, has been to present classical Christian education as it should be, and to a certain extent as it already is. Many classical Christian schools across the country have undertaken educational projects which coincide with what I've described in this pamphlet. Not all of them have, though, and if certain readers are disenchanted with the Classical Christian Project on account of the way I've described it, this pamphlet's not necessarily a failure. Classical Christian education is primarily suited to those who have despaired of the world's promises. It is a strange and countercultural movement which requires one to make great sacrifices, the greatest of which is not the high tuition rates or the low salaries, but rather the embarrassment which comes from turning one's back on so much of what the world calls important. In an egalitarian society such as ours, any commitment to beautiful old things will quickly earn accusations of elitism, arrogance, and pretension, and an unflinching fidelity to the obligations of piety will bring charges of narrow-mindedness, dogmatism, and intolerance. The fear of being called such things has made more than a few people within the movement open to the idea of transforming the project into something less demanding, less strange, and more palatable. However, classical Christian education can only justify its existence if it's altogether different from the schooling options which are already out there. The movement only needs to exist if it aims to accomplish something distinct, if it fills a need which is otherwise unmet. Accordingly, I have described the classical Christian project in a manner which emphasizes its distinction from public schools, non-classical Christian schools, charter schools, and Montessori schools. While there are other explanations of classical Christian education available, I believe that they all conform too much to the image of a schooling option that already exists elsewhere. Nonetheless, there may also be readers who find they agree with most of what's been written here, but not all of it. To these readers, allow me to say that there is a difference between not agreeing with a certain position and not living up to the highest standards entailed by that position. So far as the arguments in this pamphlet are concerned, I myself am the latter type. I know what it means to be a classical Christian educator. I know it's a high calling. And I know that I don't live up to the standards implied by the classical Christian project. This pamphlet is not a description of what I do, but of what I want to do. Participation in the classical Christian movement is not dependent on perfection, 
put on divine discontent with mediocrity and a striving after perfection. It is less like a banquet hall than a hospital where health and strength are restored in preparation for an eternal dance. To all those with a will to dance, we are glad you have joined us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.